Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into the Buster Show podcast. Today, as always, a very special guest, Alan Amron. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Buster. Nice to be here. So to set a little bit of context, uh, when we first uh, started exchanging messages, you had sent me a product, a uh, new invention that you, uh, I don't know if you got the patent or um, you, you had just created this concept. Um, and I was looking through some of the other things that you had done, uh, which definitely beyond just this new football concept, which we'll talk about at, at length, I'm sure. Um, you know, the other things that you had done totally legitimized it for me, such as having been the original creator of what is now the post-it sticky note. Yes. Does that just blow people away when you tell them that? I try not to tell too many people that because it's kind of hard to believe. But yeah, yeah, I wrote a book called uh, An Invented Life, The Smoking Gun, that tells the whole story about how when I invented it when I was very young, I think I was like 23 or 24, something like that. And I brought it to, to 3M, who was making scotch tape at the time. I thought it would be a good match for them. And, uh, and then the story is, uh, is in my book. It's called An Invented Life, The Smoking Gun, and it's sold everywhere online and in bookstores. That's insane. You, so you were about 23 years old when you came up with this, uh, with that product? Yeah, I was, I was leaving my house one day and I was in a hurry and I needed to leave a note for my wife and I didn't have any scotch tape. So I had to figure out a way of leaving a note on the refrigerator where she'd see it. And I came up with a way of putting a, a kind of a sticky substance behind a piece of paper so that it wouldn't stick on the refrigerator yet that would come off and go on and come off and go on. And it ended up becoming a product and I started manufacturing it and selling it to stationary stores around the United States and, um, and thought it was such a good product that that's why I brought it to 3M, yeah. Wow. Did you know back then that you wanted to spend a lot of your life inventing things? Was that, or was that something that just sort of landed on, upon you? I never wanted to be an inventor. I never even knew what an inventor did. I used to think like an inventor wore an Argyle sweater with the cutoff sleeve sweatshirt or whatever. Um, and I never really thought of myself as an inventor. What I was doing is I was creating things that I needed. And by creating the things that you need, if it doesn't exist in the real world, you're inventing. And um, so I invented the battery-operated water gun in 1973. Wow. It didn't become popular till 1985 because of the war in Vietnam. That's all in my book. I talk about that as well. I've invented, I have 40 United States patents in the United States Patent Office. And out of them, 17 of them were successful products. Like with Nikon camera, I invented the photo wallet before people were able to see video and TV and, and uh, pictures on your cell phones, I invented a player that was looked like a, an iPhone. It was four inches square. Um, I'm sorry, four inches rectangle. And you were able to show digital images on it. In those days, there were no digital images. People didn't even know what a JPEG was. It was like way before it's time, but that's what inventing is. You invent things you don't know if it's the right time for it or not. And that's when it's successful or not. Whether it's going to be inevitable is what I invent. I invent things that are going to be inevitable. 
Um, whether it's a success at the time I invented, not necessarily because the people didn't catch up to it yet, you know, but eventually everything I invented uh, became either a hit or eventually down the road became a product. Wow. Now, how, how do you have that long of a time frame when creating something to be accepting of, okay, maybe this isn't for the time today, but I'm confident that in 10 years, and do you stay on top of that? Do you do anything with it? Are you still manufacturing said item, even if you don't, even if you think that it might not uh, become popular for 10 or 20 years? Or is that something that you just shelf and say, I'll revisit it when it makes more sense if you already have that patent? No, I never shelf anything. If I think it's good enough and it's going to be inevitable, even if the public doesn't buy it, I'll pursue it and keep going. And I know eventually, I'll give you an example with the photo wallet. The biggest drawback I had was the battery life. Now the battery life on the iPhone is like two days. My battery life was seven minutes. I mean, we could, you wow. got to remember in those days, it was, I'm talking about like 20 years ago, we didn't have the technology that we have today. And, and technology catches up with your invention. So I had a, uh, what we call the smart media card, which is now a compact flash. Smart media, when I invented the photo wallet, for Nikon only held four megabytes. Four megabytes today is ridiculous. It's now it's like 40 gigs on a little um, um, uh, scan chip. So when people would tell me when I invented the photo wallet for Kodak first and then for Nikon, that it's, that it's just impossible for people to want to buy a product that'll only let them show pictures for seven minutes for the battery life and only show four or five different pictures because it doesn't hold a lot. I said, look, eventually the... The density of the of the cards are going to be better and the, and the battery life will be better. But nobody believed it in those days because nobody was really working on it. But then it, you could see where we are today, 20 years later, where the capacity on a, on a, uh, a chip is like, a, I think you can get 100 gigabytes on a small little uh, scan disk right now. And also the battery life on a phone running video is for two is for eight to 12 to 14 hours. So. It was those are the things that make you get think about whether or not you invented the right thing. But in those days, I always knew that eventually that it would be a product. And it was. It eventually became a product. Um, I've been working now for 12 years on the uh, first down laser line for the NFL and football. When I first invented that, I brought it to Pat Summerall, who was a, a sportscaster for Fox Sports at the time. He thought it was a great idea, and I did too, obviously. I invented it. And we, he, he introduced me like, like two days later to the commissioner of football, who wasn't Roger Goodell at the time, but um, he introduced me to the commissioner of football and to like team owners and coaches. And I'm talking about going from not knowing anybody in pro football to going into knowing everyone because Pat Summerall just opened the door. And he thought the idea was that great. Now, here I am now, uh, 12 years later or so, with a United States patent on what I believe is the culmination of the 12 years of working on it. Because the NFL gave me their ideas of what they think it should be and what it, you know, when I first invented it, it was raw. I had five patents on it, but it was still raw. It wasn't ready for real prime time, if you will. Well, now we have the United States patent on it, which not only covers the line showing the, I mean, everybody knows what the yellow line does on TV. That's a graphic. 
my green laser line is on the actual field. So people on the field could see it. People in the stadium can see it. The fans, the officials, the coaches, everybody. And it could be the official line on the field. So I this, is, have- this is just adding in what people see on TV into real life. Well, it's, it's replacing the yellow line and putting a real line where people see a little, a light green line on the field instead of a yellow line. And it would be actually on the field where the players are able to use it and know where the first down line is. The referees will never have a problem with spotting the ball again because the line is there, put the ball on the line. You know, it's that simple. Uh, but, I, but I advanced the system and included nine other points. I monitor the ball. I monitor the player. I monitor the ground, the sound. If a whistle blows, I know the whistle blew. Wow. I monitor the goal line. I monitor the first down line. And I monitor the goalposts so that if the goalposts, if the ball is hit really high, it kicked really high, and the referees are on an angle, they can't tell whether it was in between the two uh, goalposts. My uh, laser system is able to tell whether or not it went inside, hit the laser, or went outside. So I'll know if it's good. And this is in real time. Uh, reporting, and I'm not doing it. This is all in the algorithm that we invented that's in the patent that takes all of this information that's happening in real time and it gives it to the referee and it gives it to the statisticians on the on the newscast absolutely immediately. Can this be applied to every sport? Can it be applied to soccer and baseball and basketball? Or is this just for a football? Well, they have things in tennis like the Cyclops. They have things in in baseball, they have certain things that do monitoring the players and the ball and things like that. Um, we're specific to football right now, but we also do track and field, you know, where we're able to put the line on the field and track the, the, the players oh, and cool. the runners and athletes. We do it in, uh, and we actually did it at the, um, at the NCAA National Championships in 2014 and 2015 at Haywood Field. Um, in Oregon, we actually did the NCAA uh, uh, championships and it worked out really great. It just, the time wasn't right. That's why it, after it came out in 2014 and 15, the timing wasn't right. And I believe the timing is right now because you got the XFL, the XFL, um, you got all these other leagues where I could play with, where they could actually test my equipment and the NFL will feel more comfortable using it after uh, they see it in another league. Definitely. So when you came up with this, obviously, so you got the patent recently and then tomorrow, tomorrow, oh, actually, 2-22-22. The, patent office, the way the patent date. office works is they grant you the patent and then about three months later, they actually issue it. And then just before they issue it, a week or two before they give you the number. So I have the patent number and I know tomorrow, which is 2 22 2022 is the date. I love the date. That date is the date that's going to be the issue date on the patent. Got it. And then the patent just protects you from uh, having to worry about other people or having the legal merit to go after other people if they tried to copy it in any of the ways that are listed, right? Yeah, a patent is, is protection on your invention for 17 years. So 17 years from tomorrow, I'll be able to protect my invention. So if anybody decides they want to monitor the ball in football, they want to monitor, put a, a laser line on the football or use lasers to, um, to locate where the first down is on the field, uh, the goalpost, the sound on the field, the, the ground, the, 
the, the player's knee hitting the ground before the ball, breaking the plane, all those things uh, spelled out in method claims in my patent, I'll be protected. And protected in the sense that, yeah, they could go ahead and do it, but if they're infringing my patent, I have to notify them and uh, we hopefully come to a settlement and an understanding. If not, then, then there's legal action that has to be taken. Right. Now this, for the football though, this is in partnership with the NFL or this is separately. And then you just want the NFL to use it. Um, right now we're, we're contemplating partnerships with uh, leagues, uh, professional football leagues, like the XFL, the USFL and the NFL. Um, because obviously I can't use my equipment outside in a regular football game. It's silly. Right. It's not necessary, right. but in a professional football and in college, you know, uh, the NCAA is interested as well. And so, but we wouldn't partner with the NCAA because the ultimate game is in the NFL. And, and what we're go, our goal is, is to partner with the NFL and, and, um, and be their technology, um, system going forward. That would be very cool. I mean, you listing out all those things, it sounds like you own the future tech of football. Is that sort of how you look at it? Well, you know, it's really funny. Look where we are. We're in 2022. And I'm able to get a patent on all of these things that the NFL should be should have been doing 10 or 20 years ago. Right. And, and they're not. And if they are doing it, they're not doing it in a, um, uh, a public way. And they're not doing it in a protected way. And I don't, I, look, I, I've been checking with the NFL and, and a lot of sport uh, players and the NFL's practicing and doing stuff with monitoring the players and the ball, but they're doing it for statistics. They're not doing it to get an algorithm that gives a report as to whether or not the game is being played fairly. You know, officiating in the NFL costs billions of dollars to the teams that, that get they get that lose games because of a bad call referees that line up lines do it on a peripheral you know wherever they're standing they're lining up based on where they're standing sure they try to line it up but that's all they're doing they're trying to line it up with my equipment it, it automatically lines it up instantaneously there's not even a delay in the game so yeah i'm surprised myself that uh, there's nothing else in the um, in the offering right now uh, for professional football officiating. Now, is there a world where you see these sports are completely autonomously officiated? And do you see this product pushing in that direction? Do you think that's also a good thing or a bad thing? I think what you said is a bad thing. I don't think it should just be done automatically. I think that what my reporting does, it gives it to the to the referee and the uh, officials. They do what they want with it. If they think the call needs to be evaluated differently because of human error or human something, uh, my algorithm can't tell that. So I'm counting right. on the referees and officials to take what information I can give them and to, um, and to evaluate it and to make a call. And yeah, the, the system will do, um, will do all the right things to give them the right information. For example, right now, 12% of all calls on the field are wrong. 12% statistically. What my equipment will do will eliminate that 12% and make it 100% accurate. Now, do we want it 100% accurate? The bettors do. The people that are betting on the games want it to be 100% accurate. The players want it to be 100% accurate. The owners want it to be 100% accurate. There are just 
some fans that say, ah, come on, I like it when it's when there's controversy and and the call's wrong and they're arguing. And yeah, there's a certain element there that that my system can't handle. Right. You definitely make a point, though, in terms of, you know, a robot or technology could never determine unsportsmanlike conduct. That's right. the sort of that's the sort of thing that is going to come down to which referee is officiating that game and right. then makes a judgment call on that. But most rules and most plays can be done in this of course. way. 99% but, of the plays that are in the NFL now are automatic plays. It either is or it isn't. The line's there. The ball goes there. It's all very simple. There are a couple of human elements that are involved with if a player picks up a ball and moves it by accident or if the ball's kicked or something like that. Well, that's human stuff that my machine may not be able to pick up. I don't know yet because we haven't really tried that. But it's possible that the referee is going to have to add a little bit uh, to, to, the, um, to, the, to the recipe here. Now, when you're partnering up with a league and you have the patent behind this product, is, is this something where they just uh, pay you or license the concept from you? Or are you selling them the individual tech and your team to run it on their behalf? How does sort of that work? Or, or is this something you sell to them entirely? Well, no, I, I, I won't sell it to them entirely. I'm, I'm trying to partner with them so that, that we could either work together or if they want to work on their own. You, you got to understand the leagues have so much money and so much wherewithal to be able to do stuff that they can get things done a lot faster and a lot more efficient than I can. Right. They can work with bigger companies than I can. I work with, with companies that are regular sized people that do their job every day and they develop things, but they go to places like Cisco and, and Amazon and, and they get really high tech, uh, high efficiency help. So I'm open to the, to the discussion of having uh, the NFL or the USFL or the XFL partner with us in our patent technology and then they could either run with it and, and, and share the revenue with me on it, or they can either buy it out and eventually um, own it on their own. It, it, it depends on how they want to operate. Interesting. Do you see these sorts of applications being applied across the sports, uh, across sports, you know, from a broad standpoint? And are there any other pain points that you see in professional sports that can, that similar tech uh, could really benefit that that you have your eye on. Yes, yeah, soccer. We were approached by the the uh, soccer league in Europe. Uh, soccer is very big in the world, probably bigger than our American football. But way bigger. Our system, yeah. Our system can use in soccer too. If like uh, you know that round foam they put around the soccer ball when the guy has a free kick. They don't yeah. have to put the foam on there. I could put the circle with the laser on there. Um, they have an invisible line. Like we have the invisible line on the field for first down right now. And I could put it on, on the field with my laser. I could do the same thing with soccer where they have, when the offensive player is running, the defensive player is not allowed to run in front of them. So, but the referee could be on an angle where he really can't tell whether he's in front of the player or not. So what our line does is give that line so the defensive player and the referees could see that the offensive players are in front of the defensive players. So I don't know what, I think they call that the offside line or something. I'm not exactly yeah. sure, but that line and also the circle around uh, the ball during the free kick and also the goal, we can monitor the goal. When the ball goes through the goal, if it's a fair kick, we'll know whether it's a fair kick or not.
Yeah, I'm sure the out of bounds too, just on the sidelines, whether it's going to be a corner or something like that. Out of bounds, monitoring the players, monitoring the players. You know, if if um, uh, if the ball is is put into play and it's not supposed to be, the we'll be able to know whether it is or it isn't right. So yeah, there. But the thing is, it's not our algorithm takes what the sport wants. Like I get, like like we worked with uh, NFL officials to know what it is in the game they need to make the, 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 their, get their job a lot easier and quicker and more accurate. Same thing in soccer. We're going to work with the soccer referees to know what works for them and what they need, put it into my algorithm, and then my machine basically does everything on its own. Now, how does it communicate the calls to the officials? Because in the NBA, there are, this, I believe this year or last year is the first year where there are instant replays. A coach can challenge a call. The officials go over to the monitor. They send it back to Secaucus, New Jersey, where the NBA headquarters are. They review it. It takes like five minutes. Everybody's bored by the end of it and ready to get the call over with. How does it communicate that to the officials in a timely manner? Is it like a buzzer or, or, or sort of how do you see that playing out, I guess, for, for football to start? Well, a lot of a lot of the calls you're talking about that they have to go over and review. They're reviewing an instant replay. They're trying to see where the ball was when something happened. What right. my equipment does is it already tells them that. In other words, I'll know whether the ball broke the plane or the player's knee hit the ground first, or he was out of bounds. One foot was out of bounds. Or I'll know all that before they even have to go over and look for it. What I could do is okay. They don't have to agree with what I got, but I'll show them in my algorithm in a report that the player was was within bounds the ball was in bounds the player held the ball firmly all those particular points that they look for in the instant replay they won't have to and i would assume right. that once they get used to it it won't be a matter of well let's check on the algorithm all they they'll, they'll see if they check like for the first few times if they see my algorithm says that it was a good call on the field then they can go in an instant replay and see that it is in fact the good call the old-fashioned way same thing with the lines with the flag set my line will tell you that the ball where the first down line is on the laser line but if they want to take the flags out and measure it for themselves they could do that anytime they want but the nfl like when i told them that they said well why would we want to bring the flags out if we already know we saw that the ball was over the laser line which makes sense but like you said Sometimes they want to look at it, you know, and challenge it. And then you would have to look at, at the instant replay to see whether or not uh, the ball broke the plane or the player's foot was out or things like that. Got it. Okay. That makes a little more sense. So for the most part, the algorithm knows the right call and then the officials can back that up through reviewing it to confirm that it was indeed the right call. If it's challenged, if it's not challenged, you'll say, Hey, the algorithm called it or, or the referee on the field called it. And, you know, so, you know, one of the referees once said to me years ago, he says, well, you know, that's going to make our referees look bad. What if the referee puts the ball down on the nine yard line and the line is on the nine and a half yard line? You know, he thought it was on the nine yard line, but it, the, the actual line is the nine and a half yard line. So um, so I said, well, so what if it's going to make the referees look bad? It's right. That's just ego. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He, he agreed afterwards. Well, I'm glad that he was able to see the light there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's interesting, though. Uh, question overall: What what invention of yours are you most proud of, and is it this upcoming football? 
when you say proud of, um, I'm proud of all the inventions I did. And, and again, I know people say this all the time. They're like children. The same thing with film guys and, and right. guys that write songs. All their songs are like their kids, you know, you, you like them all. But it, the one that I'm, I'm most proud of is the post-it notes because uh, sticky notes is known by every, I go travel all over the world. I lecture at universities in, in Europe. I lecture at universities at UC Berkeley in California or, or in New York. Everybody, everybody uses the post-it note and knows the sticky note. So I think I'm the most proud of that. And I tell the story about the sticky note uh, because everybody knows how to use it now. I know it sounds silly, but when I invented it, nobody knew how to use a sticky note because I'd give them a note and I'd tell them, put it on the wall. And they would just write a note and they'd put it on the wall and it would fall. I said, no, you have to touch the top where the glue is. Now, everybody in the world knows that now, but when you invent something new, you have to explain how to use it to people right. at first. So that's like an interesting way of explaining to people that a new idea as simple as the post-it note needs to be explained that is a funny dynamic um if you could give your 23 year old self one piece to piece of uh invention advice something that you've learned about inventing things in the years since then what would you tell yourself don't settle with 3m that's what i would have told myself i settled with them too fast and too easy i didn't think I thought it was a great idea. Don't get me wrong. I invented it. But when I settled with 3M back way back when, I wasn't, it wasn't a big idea then. Post-it notes wasn't even, it wasn't even called post-it note. I think it was called sticky note or I don't remember what they called it at first. Um, and so that I would tell myself, listen, don't settle with 3M. Don't just take the quick money and get out. You know, I was thinking when I was younger that when you think of ideas and it comes out of your head, it'll never stop and I'll always have product and I'll always be able to sell it and make money. And that was true for a while. When you get older, it stops. So um, my 23-year-old my self, I'd say, don't settle with 3M. Everything else, do it the same way. But that particular thing, don't settle with 3M. Interesting. So if somebody has a great product, you think make the most out of it and keep it to yourself or set up royalty type partnerships just so that you have like some leverage in the game? The best way to do it with an invention is to have a piece of it. This way, if it's a success, you'll always get a piece of that success. Right. Uh, but that's not always the way the companies that like ideas handle it. A lot of them like to buy it outright so they don't have to deal with you in the future, uh, which is what happened with 3M. They bought me out right away. I mean, they settled with me immediately. And, and it looked a little suspicious at the time that they were so anxious. They settled within 10 days. I wow. mean, it was very quick. Yeah. For a company that size to settle on a case in 10 days to me was like, okay, you know, I'm right. They're wrong. That's the end of it. But you got to think a little bit further. If it became as big as it was, like it's billions and billions of dollars. In those days, it wasn't even hundreds of thousands they were doing. So I never would have thought that it could have been as big as it is today. Never. Never. I knew it was a great idea, obviously, but I never thought it was going to be as big as it is today where everybody I'm talking, you can't find anybody that's never used a post-it note. Right. Now, if somebody has an idea today, everybody thinks that they have the next great idea for an invention. Do you think most people should just never even try to pursue it because it's a waste of their time? Or what do you think is the best first step in evaluating whether it's something to pursue? 
Well, when I was younger, we didn't have Google and we didn't have cell phones. So you can't really search it and see in those days. You had to go to Washington and look at Fisher, uh, um, at these, these uh, X-ray kind of, they called them kind of Fisher something or other. Um, so I used to go to Washington and check the, the, to see if anything existed I came up with. And that's like a time-consuming, hard job. Today, you could type it into Google. You could come up with a great idea, type it into Google, and chances are you could buy it on Amazon that same day. <laughs> you know? You're right. Um, You're right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, a lot of people say my idea is the greatest. I don't even need to check Amazon or I don't need to check Google. I think that's ridiculous. You have to check. And I know it's disappointing if you see it's already been done. But that's life. You know, life is, is, is generally disappointing. Yeah. Now, if, if you go on Google and it doesn't exist, what is the next step? Well, then you do patent searches because it could exist in the patent world. You know, a lot of patent, I'll give you a statistic, 98% of patents that are in the patent office and we're up to 11 million now, my new patents, wow. 11 million, 263. Um, you gotta, you gotta figure out and 99% of those patents, nobody's making money out of those patents. Only 1% of patents ever make any money. So people's always trying to get a patent on an item and, and make millions of dollars. Doesn't always happen like that. 99% of all patents in the patent office don't make any money at all. How does the patent office determine what is patent worthy? Because I'd love to patent, you know, the concepts of like, you know, going certain places or doing certain things, but what, what, why can I not do that? Or what are the parameters of what is good or what isn't? There's three parameters, new, novel, and unique. Those are the three parameters that, of, of an invention. If you get something that's brand new, it's novel and it's unique, and you invented it, the patent office will tell you if it's truly new, novel, and unique. They check the entire world in, in newspapers because what you, anything that's in, in a newspaper is considered prior art. Like if somebody, if you invent a pair of sunglasses that does something different and you read about it somewhere in a French magazine in 1938, that's prior art and you can't get a patent in 2022. So anything that's been printed about even, and that's funny because a lot of stuff in, in 1935, like in, um, uh, in, in, in the olden days, they used to have like Flash Gordon type of ideas, you know, where, right. where they where they, I had, I had a situation where the invention I had, I invented a ball, a ball shooter that uh, players could use for practice where the ball would shoot out and they could hit it. And there was an episode on Gumby where they did that in 1950 something. And wow. I said, I can't believe it. I can't get a patent because Gumby thought of a, this idea that he never really did. They never really, it was just an idea that the cartoon guy came up with. And because of that, I couldn't get a patent on it. So yeah, things that are, even if they're far-fetched and even if they're from years ago, if it's been published in a magazine or a newspaper, it's called prior art and you can't get a patent on it. So then what does the 17 years mean? What, what does that mean? Well, when you do have something that's patentable, that nobody's talked about or, or did uh, in, in any meaningful way uh, or published way, then that patent, like my patent starting tomorrow gives me 17 years of a monopoly on my claims in the patent. And, and the claims of a patent are sort of your 60 by 100 parameter of a house and real estate. 
You, you own real estate at 60 by 100. You don't own anything further or anywhere around it. With my patent, I own claims, method claims of how to do certain things in the parameters of a football field and in the game. Uh, if somebody infringes on those parameters, I get compensated for it. If they don't infringe on those, I don't. And it's as simple as that. Interesting. Interesting. Now, in terms of the football, when do you hope we can begin to see uh, you know, what this can do? And is it also something where people online can follow along with the algorithm and tracker as they watch? Do you think there's a viewing component to following along with the football? Well, interestingly, I'm told that the data coming from my system is more valuable than the actual system that's working on the field. So I'll be able to give you data on that field, like at what time the whistle blew and how many times the whistle blew, where the location of the referee was when he blew the whistle, where the, the quarterback was when the whistle was. I could tell you every single detail of that game in my algorithm and then just type a thing saying, I want to know what this did and how it did it. And then I can get a report on it. So yeah, the data is going to be immense. Um, I mean, immensely valuable already. I can see that being insanely valuable to any sports betting company. I mean, anybody who's betting on a gate, a big game would want to have access to the, that because sometimes the calls are very delayed. Say there's a review that has to happen, but you see what the review is going to be before the official walks across the field to get there. Exactly. And you know, this is this rule where the, the official needs to touch the ball before the game. There was a problem in, in uh, one game in the playoffs where uh, Kansas City and, and the, the team got, came out and they were trying to run the play before the referee even touched the ball and they couldn't. Well, that rule is important. My algorithm will know whether they, the ref touched the ball or not. Right. If the right. ref did, went to make a touch of the ball and he didn't touch the ball, I'll know that too. So right down to the finite detail of like, I use the whistle as an example because most people don't even hear the whistle. You know, you could hear in, a, in the, in the, confusion of the game and the pileups and all the things that are happening, you hear several whistles blowing. You don't know which one was the first one or when it happened. Well, when the whistle is blown and the play is dead, I have in my algorithm a time and there it is. It's timestamp. That's the, that's when the play had to stop. Anything after that is not in the game. So little things like that. And that's a detail because every other thing is like where the players locations are and, uh, I guess it would also be for for players, for um, for coaches to be able to know exactly where their players were in a particular play and whether or not they were in the right place or not. You know, they may say, well, the running back was supposed to be here and he was over here at that play. I mean, I can, that's the, the finite detail that you could get out of the algorithm. That's not my main goal, but the data coming out of the algorithm is inevitable and, and it's going to be more valuable to, to the coaches and, and staff. That is really fascinating. This whole, uh, this whole conversation has been very, very educational. So thank you. Thank you so much for hopping on. Where can people follow you and uh, follow along with your inventions and, and this idea in particular? Okay, they can go to enhancefanexcitement.com. EnhanceFanExcitement.com or FirstDownLaser.com, FirstDownLaserLine.com, and uh, they could see our website. I also have a website that's um, uh, Post-it Note Inventor. Uh, so if they go there, 
uh, inventor of post-it notes, post-it notes inventor, either way it goes.com and they can read my stuff on there as well. And they can go to Amazon or any of bookstores and buy my book. I didn't realize how much shit I got going on. There we go. It's the best way to do it. Well, I'm Absolutely. definitely going to be ordering and, and reading the book. So thank you again for coming on and hopefully we'll do it again sometime. Appreciate it. Thank you, Buster. I appreciate the call. All right, thank everybody. You. We'll see ya.